Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Well, it's good to be back, y'all. Huh? It's good to see everybody. I've been away for a few weeks, and uh, I was uh, traveling a little bit. Um, it's not till August that my wife and I are going to go on a vacation that the church helped with. Praise God. That's in Cancun. Praise the Lord. But um, <clears throat> been away, and uh, actually I was in uh, Detroit last week preaching at my uncle's church. Um, we had a family reunion. Anybody do T-shirts, family reunion T-shirts? Anybody do that? Okay, only a few of you. Uh, we do family reunion T-shirts and a family reunion hat. Praise God. And um, so, uh, yeah, so we did our family reunion in Detroit, and it was dope. It was good seeing everybody and uh, really good food and good hangout time. And then you see, like, uh, if you've done a family reunion, you see your cousin who you haven't seen in five years, six years, and we're always surprised by their growth. Like, oh, you're so big now. Oh, my gosh. And you just you hug them, and you're so excited, right? And that's what we did. It was good to see everybody. But in my family, I don't know about yours, but in my family, there are those people who are tracking along in the way that you know they were supposed to go. Then there are all those people that you're like, hey, what you doing now? And the report you get back isn't good. You know what I'm talking about? Like you sit down and you're like, so let me get this right. And this is true. And hopefully my cousin doesn't listen to the sermon. But like I have family members who had full scholarships. But now, and listen, there's nothing wrong with working at Waffle House. Praise the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that vocation. But he had a full scholarship. And he blew it his first year smoking weed. And now he's working at Waffle House. And then I had other family members. He's 45 and he's dating three women. He thinks it's cool. And then there's guys who are 50. And there's nothing wrong with living your parents. I know New York City is different. In the South, it's a little bit different though. Like you spoke at 50, you should move out, praise God. And I mean, they're, they're still living at home. And, and, you start, and, and, and you start saying to yourself, to some of your family members, like, at this point in your life, you should have grown up by now. Like, when you were younger, it was cool that you did what you did, but now it's, it's time for you to grow up. And all of these, well, a good portion of them that I spoke with, it was interesting. Some of them felt comfortable with what they were doing. And it became clear to me that it wasn't that they haven't grown older. And the reason why they haven't matured is that they have an inaccurate picture of adulthood. And that's what happens when a person, when a man or a woman is still immature over the years. It's not because they haven't gotten older. It's because they have the an inaccurate or the wrong vision of adulthood. Spiritually, we can do the same thing. That we can begin to look at certain people and look over time and find that there are people who just aren't growing spiritually. And you look and you say to yourself, you're still doing certain things. And we figured by this time you would have 
grown. In, in several verses, it kind of highlights this. In uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul is referencing a, a community there, and he says uh, in, in 1 Corinthians that, uh, sorry. This is what happens when you haven't preached in a while, you lose the message. <laughs> There was, um, in, in Hebrews rather, Hebrews 5.12, it says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, if, it, it's as if you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. And so look at the key word, he says, at this time. And so what we understand about this community, is it had been about, been about three or four years, and he says, it was okay for a season for you to be on what he called milk. It was okay for you to be immature, we get it. He says, but now it's time. It's time you grow and change and mature. There comes a time. In the book of 1 Corinthians, it's a similar idea in 1 Corinthians chapter three, one. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who, live, who are led by the Spirit, but people who are still, still worldly, mere infants in Christ. You see? So when you, you know, we're a new church, three years old, and we got like millennials everywhere, and we're young, and, and, and as we get older, and we're maturing, and people are getting, you know, big boy jobs and big girl jobs, praise God, and I can see in the tithing, praise the Lord. So I know that you all are maturing in your careers, and people are, you know, trying to date and relate to one another, and everyone is focused on maturing in their careers, and people are trying to mature financially, but do you know there's a time clock on maturing spiritually? that there comes a point after a few years that there's certain things that you should put away. And I think because the way we started as a church, we started with nobody. So it's kind of like, you know, I, you know, I get it. You know, you still, okay, so if you slapped her, it was okay. I get it, you know, just sometimes you slap people. You know what I mean? Like when you start off as a church, you just don't want to really be mad about people doing crazy stuff because the reality is you don't know them and you're just starting out, but now we know each other. And if we're honest, there comes a point where maturity is not just gonna come from sermons. Maturity has to happen from within the community by calling each other up to live a certain way and to build each other up. In fact, it, what's interesting is that part of the problem is when I say we have a wrong picture of maturity in the world, like with my family, we often have it in the church. And so oftentimes, you know, if someone is very gifted, if they can sing, or if someone is very knowledgeable, or if they're faithful, we tend to think that means they're mature. And, now, and, and in particular, knowledge and faithfulness are the greatest imposters of maturity. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I've been to seminary. You know what I'm saying? I've been to seminary. I, went, I got like three, four degrees. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? I'm mature. 
Oh, I've been at this church like since it began. Oh yeah, like I remember nothing was here and now I'm here and I've been around a long time. I've been around, I'm old school Bridge Church. You know what I'm saying? I was around when there was nobody. I remember when it was a Bible study. I've been around a while. Oh yeah, I could quote to you verse after verse. Oh, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Thessalonians, pop, 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 pop. I can quote things. I know things. I've been places. I've been on a mission trip. I've been over the, overseas. I can do all these things based upon my memory and my experience, but knowledge and faithfulness do not equate to maturity. It is the greatest masquerade. And this is what crushes the church. And my heart is set that we would have a series that we help detail what maturity actually is. So that you can have the right vision, so that you don't look over at her and say, man, she knows everything, she must be mature. He's been in all these different experiences, he must be mature. But that we could look in the word of God and know exactly what maturity is In Ephesians chapter four, there's one more thing I wanna lay out. In Ephesians chapter four, this verse comes in the context of Paul writing to this Ephesian church and telling them that there are all these gifts that are in the body. And he says that when the gifts are operating, that we all mature into one new man. And he says, this is what happens when you have immaturity. He says, so there will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. So the imagery that Paul makes is like there are a bunch of people on a boat and you've got the adults and you've got the kids, right? And on this boat, there's winds and waves and there's all this rocking and moving. And the adults are there and the kids are there, but the kids can't, they, they, they can't um, anchor themselves. They're moving around. And so every time a wind or a wave come, they flop, they go back and forth. And the imagery is that the adults would grab the kids and secure them tight to work through the winds and the waves. That you would have not titles necessarily, but mature believers helping people who are growing. And we are a church, the reason why we've called ourselves Bridge Church is that we always wanted to reach people who were far from God, people who were walking into this church like, yo, I've never, what, I don't even know where Genesis, where's that, where's that? I don't even have a Bible, like, we want that, we like that, and if you are like that here today, we love that you're here. If you didn't know some of the songs, that's cool, that's fine. If you don't know the verses yet, that's cool, that's fine. And I pray that you see that your growth will not just come from me or will not just come from the music but there are people in here that want to help you grow. But I just want you to be able to identify them. To be able to accurately identify maturity. And our heart as a church, our heart is that part of being mature is that you want to pour out my Um, one day my daughters will look back at these sermons and be incredibly embarrassed. 
because I use them so much. But you know, my one daughter's one year older than my other daughter. And when they get into an argument and there's conflict, do you know who we always go to? The older one. And you know what we say? You're older. We say, you're the one that's more mature. And we expect certain things of you. And we expect you to care for your sister. And if we create an environment or a church where everyone is just depending on the pastors, then we will be functionally like an orphanage where no one is being cared for. And everyone will be resentful. It's like, he went away for a sabbatical? Wish I had a sabbatical, you know what I'm saying? Went away for a month, wish I could go away for a month. And there will be bitterness. And part of the issue, when going back to that Hebrews, when he says you should be teachers, oftentimes people go, little old me? Who, me? I couldn't, I can't help anybody grow in their faith. I'm struggling myself. And so my heartbeat is that you would begin to see maturity not based on merely knowledge, but obedience. Because if maturity is about knowledge, then only the academic and the scholarly can help people grow. But if maturity is about obedience, then we all got a shot. We all got a shot to be a part of helping people. I remember uh, there was a guy early on in my college ministry, his name was Ed, and Edward came into the ministry, didn't know a thing, didn't know anything. And after Bible study, he would go back and read the chapters that we were discussing. And then he would hit me up and ask me questions. And, and he was just digging into his Bible and he would hang out with me. And, 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 and all of a sudden, I said to him one day, I said, Ed, let me tell you something. If you keep on this track of, of asking questions, learning, growing, you're going to be more mature than everyone in that Bible study. He's like, well, I just, he was, and he said, I don't, he said, y'all were talking about Samson tonight. And I didn't know who Samson was. So I just go back to study because I don't know who that is. And I was like, yeah, but you're doing what they're not. <laughs> you're, you're actually digging in and, you're, and you're, you're embracing prayer. You're embracing study, but you're also humble. And that's your real catalyst to growth. Ed, don't, don't change. And so that's the heartbeat There are seven habits of mature believers that we're gonna run through in this series. And the first habit is actually one that oftentimes we talk about just having a devotional life, but kind of the heartbeat of a devotional life is always placing yourself in the presence of God, of positioning yourself to come back home and be in his midst. And oftentimes what we find is that It's hard for people to continually do that as a habit because they deal with shame. The book of Genesis chapter three, verse seven, it reads this way. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So this is what they did. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
So they start hiding themselves from God. And before that, all they know is God's presence and all they have is a God consciousness. But the minute they sin, they actually create, they, have, they become tailors, create clothes because they were naked and unashamed before. And now they're filled with shame and they cannot stand to be in God's presence. And they are uncomfortable being around him. The first sinful emotion ever experienced was shame. Toxic, painful. And shame is the painful emotion that is caused by the consciousness of guilt. And so the way that shame often operates is that it is like a lawyer in your conscience, a lawyer detailing your sin, a lawyer pointing out everything you've ever done, a lawyer reminding you of everything you've ever been and saying to you, you will never be like them or you're not good enough and making you feel like God is through with you. And oftentimes even the church should be through with you and that God should look at you differently and that your God, he now wants less time with you because of your sin. This has been one of the tragic areas in my ministry. I've seen people come into the church and the first three months, they are so excited. They're like, yo, I threw away all my hip hop and I don't go to the club no more. And I'm in church every Sunday and I'm serving, I'm on connect team and I'm, I'm helping out over here and I'm doing known campaign. And they're so, they have so much zeal. And then that old boyfriend calls up and they said, I'm not gonna respond to that. I know better. But one night, you know, they said, let me, just, let me just pick it up. Before they know it, they're engaged in a conversation they know they have no business being in. And they find themselves falling into traps. And now they come and during worship, they just kind of sway. They don't sing out like they used to. And now during city group, they used to, you know, in, in our city group, they used to maybe, when it was time for prayer requests, they would say everything, oh, and just, I'm praying for this and I'm praying for that. Now they just pray for the sun, the moon, the stars, and grandma. Because they feel shame. And they're backing away. And one of the things that is very interesting is that the power of shame doesn't mean that people won't come to church, but it does mean they think that God looks at them differently. Uh, the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verse 19. This boy who has disregarded his father and taken his inheritance, and now he's been off with prostitutes, been amongst pigs, he now starts walking back towards his father. When he goes towards his father, he begins to think to himself, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
make me like one of your hired servants. So he says, there's no way based upon what I've done, you could ever see me the same. I'm a lawbreaker. And so this is what we'll do, God. I will now work off my debt because what I've done. And that, and this is what I want you to hear, the first habit I wanna talk about essentially is truly understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because oftentimes, when people feel shame for what they've done, they still come to church, but they think they're working off their debt. And what I want you to understand is there is a difference between penance and repentance. Penance is when I'm trying to work off the debt that, God, that I have with God, but repentance is just turning back to God because I know my debt is taken care of. And so it's one thing to serve out of the overflow of God's grace, but it's another thing to serve because you think you're winning a relationship. It's one thing to serve out of relationship. It's another thing to serve for a relationship. And if you know the gospel, your relationship is secure. And the reason why you serve is because his grace is amazing. And the reason why you serve is because he's covered your sin. The reason why you serve is because he's poured out all his wrath on his son. And so you're not earning anything. You're serving because you have gratitude for what he's done. He doesn't need a hired servant. He can send down angels. Why does the church exist? Why do we sing? Why do we lift our hands? We're not earning anything. Your work is like filthy rags in God's sight. Your motives are never pure. I remember when I was a kid, I'm a preacher's kid, so that means I was in church all the time. And I remember I told my dad, I said, Dad, I don't want to usher anymore. He said, why? I said, because they don't say thank you. <laughs> they don't say thank you. I don't want to hold the door for anybody else. And you know, <laughs> I had one of those aunts who, who she said this kind of this one-liner, and you know, well, if you're serving for them to say thank you, you ain't serving for the right reason. You know, one of those kind of things. And, uh, but she was right. And many of you, and not even to knock on the singers too, or anyone doing upfront ministry, but many of you are serving to get a receipt, to get some kind of, to get a reward on earth. And you do things not out of the overflow of what God has already done. You are doing things for God to do something again. You want your career. You want God to just bless something. And so you're trying to secure a relationship with God so that he can give you that little cookie, that treat that you've been wanting. And I encourage you, if that's why you serve, I really encourage you. It's, it's, it might not be your season to serve right now. Maybe you just need to sit and soak up his goodness, and that's okay. But that's what shame does. I can't. Don't look at me like a son anymore. I'll be a hired servant. I'll work it off. 
And so what is maturity? What is having a mature, emotional heart before God? It is never believing the lie that there is a sin that you can commit that can make you lose your standing in God's sight. It is not presuming in any way that God, after you sin, is tapping his foot, waiting to hear your excuse. In Romans chapter eight, 38 through 39, Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor those present, nor the future, nor any power, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate from, from, I don't know how that happened, me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate me. And you wanna understand maturity, it is right in the beginning. I'm convinced. I'm convinced, I'm confident, I'm sure of his love for me. And so maturity is being convinced of the Father's love for you in spite of your performance. Maturity, a mature believer knows he still loves me. He still cares for me and he wants me in his presence no matter what. There is no sin. There is, and, he, and, and I love how Paul says this because essentially what he's saying, he's kind of mimicking what he said in Galatians. Even if an angel walked up to you and said, God doesn't want you anymore, he says, I'm convinced. Even if a demon were to try to persuade you, you say, I'm convinced. And so you look at your sin, no matter how you feel, no matter how much the lawyer of shame is in your mind, you say, I'm convinced of his love for me. I'm convinced. That's a mature heart. That's a mature heart. And your life will be filled with humility and gratitude because your worship will be filled because when you sing a song like, you deserve it, it will flow from the knowledge of knowing that your record and your resume is riddled with sin. And every step you take and all your breath, every, I feel like I'm about to say every move you make, but <laughs> help me, Lord, the child of the 80s. Uh, <laughs> but it's all by grace. And that will be a deep well of joy. <laughs> How can you become more convinced, church? How can you become more convinced? When you sin, do you see yourself as a lawbreaker that should be punished or do you see yourself as a child that might be disciplined? <laughs> when God looks at you, he sees the perfect record of his son, and now your older brother, Christ, 
has taken on your penalty, and now you need no worry if the Father loves you. But the scripture says he chastens whom he loves. And so there may be some correction. There may be an element where God begins to push you in your life towards certain things. But it does not mean he does not want you in his presence. And part of becoming more convinced is by understanding the life of Jesus and how much he longs to be with you. But part of the problem too is that, and I no shade on any of your parents, but some of you had parents where you did feel like a lawbreaker. Where when you failed, they removed relationship from you. And so part of us has to reconfigure how we see our God based upon the scriptures, not based upon our past or our experiences. Luke chapter seven, verse 38, reads this way. <laughs> A prostitute comes in this room where Jesus is. It says, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. And the amazing thing happening here amongst the many things that you can unpack in this text is that this woman was in a room filled with men who looked down on her. And she's down at Jesus' feet and she has put perfume on his feet. And normally you would anoint a leader's head, but she anoints his feet as a picture of submission. And then her hair unfolds and at that time, women would always leave their hair up as a sign of dignity or they would have a cover on their head. So your hair up or your hair covered was a sign of dignity. But if you put your hair down, it was a picture of prostitution. It was saying you're available. And as she's down before God, her hair falls down. And now these men look and they see, they say, see, look at this prostitute. She got her hair down, kissing his feet. Look at this prostitute. And Jesus, in the midst of all the shame of that room where there were all these echoes of how this woman should leave and get out of his presence, this is Jesus. Get your hair together. What does Jesus say to her? Jesus says in Luke 7, it says, then Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. And the word there in Greek essentially says, your sins are forgiven and stand forgiven. Your sins are perpetually forgiven. And he says this in the midst, right there, in the moment, while all these Pharisees are in the room looking at her and looking down on her. <clears throat> he says, your sins are forgiven and stand forgiven. The other guests began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? 
And Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And what Jesus was telling her is that our relationship is secure. It's safe with me. And so no matter what these men are saying about you, and no matter how these men are looking at you, you're safe with me. And I wonder, when you sin, do you feel like it's safe to run back to God? Do you feel safe? Do you feel comfortable in his presence at your worst? You will always have to put spiritual makeup on if you feel God doesn't love you in your raw self. You'll always have to perform. You'll always have to put some kind of conditional way of living to feel comfortable in his presence. And so here he says, you're safe. You have peace. Go and have peace. Now, there are always people who use messages like this and think to themselves, this must be license to sin. Because when I feel guilty, God is not angry. And in fact, what the scriptures tell us is that the, the imagery of guilt is a good thing. The, the idea of shame can be a good thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And so there is, in essence, a guilt that you may have that makes you say, I want to be separated from God. I don't want to pull myself away. But he says there is a guilt that actually causes you to come back to the Lord and come back into his presence. And so what the scriptures are telling us is that when you feel guilt and when you feel shame, it is a signal to you that you need to come back into God's presence and come back to the one that can heal that shame and heal that hurt. <clears throat> the question becomes, how do you see your God? <laughs> when I was in college, uh, I, it was crazy. Um, some of you guys know I was in a fraternity in college and I was quite rambunctious and loud and all those good things, praise the Lord. And um, I had started a fight at a party and I felt horrible. So I went to church. That was my way of feeling better about myself. So I went to church and uh, they, they did an altar call. So I came up, came up to the altar and they prayed and it was great. And then the pastor invited me to dinner after. So it was great. Went out to dinner and then we talked. And then one of the guys said, now James, I want you to know you're gonna mess up again. And I, I thought to myself, that's probably true. 
He says, but I, and it was the best advice I could get in my first year of walking with the Lord. He said, James, no matter what you feel after you sin, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Keep coming back. And I will never forget that. Two weeks later, my friends called me up. They said, James, we know you're, you're saved and all, but we'll just come out tonight. They start smoking. I look at guys, I don't smoke. I love the Lord. Jesus, 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 Jesus. I don't do that stuff, but let me just touch it real quick. And then before I found myself, and so I find myself, I find myself like, oh man, it was this slippery slope. And I, I remember I went to the bathroom. I remember I went into the bathroom and I cried my eyes out. I cried my eyes out to the point where I looked in the mirror and couldn't even look at myself. I come out the bathroom, everyone's laughing like, dude, why are you crying? Is it that hard on you? Like, are you, are you okay? Do we need to call an ambulance? And I was like, no, no, no. And I just remember I made an excuse and I, and I left and I went home. And I remember, I remember I literally threw out all my music, all my hip hop. And I was like, I remember I was walking around in my room. I'm like, God, I'm yours. I'm yours. There's nothing else. It's just yours. Me and you. It's me and you. And I'm walking around. I'm having my own private worship session. And, and then a month later, I got a girlfriend and I'm like, you know, we're pure. We're pure. And then we weren't pure, praise God. And so I'm like trying to figure this thing out, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm finding myself trying to maintain a relationship. I'm trying to be pure. I'm trying to do the right things. And then all my friends. And so we, uh, I, I, we had a, uh, I was in a, I was in a fraternity. I said this before, but, uh, I, you know, we used to do these step shows and I did this one step show and, and I'm wilding out. I mean, I'm thrusting my hips. I th I'm surprised my hip is still in place. Praise God. Uh, this was before twerking, but we didn't call it that. And so we're doing all types of stuff. And they took a picture of me and they put it on the school newspaper. And everybody in the Bible study was like, what was you doing? <laughs> and I was like, well, that's just this one move. It's like an African dance, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I'm trying to talk my way out of it. <laughs> but all the while, I'll never forget, I walk on campus, the school newspaper hadn't been in color ever, any year. I was on the front page in color. So here I am, right? And I've got the believers looking at me like I'm crazy. But I got my friends in the world like, dude, you are one wild boy. <laughs> and I'll never forget. I went to my friend's house, Tim. And we had Bible study that night. School newspapers everywhere. We didn't have email and all this other. So all we have is a school newspaper. So everyone has a school newspaper. Tim says, you still coming over tonight to Bible study? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, he is about to just bring it to me. I know. And I walk in and I get my lie right, boy. I get it. I craft it real good and whatnot. And I'm like, you know, I walk in and I say, what's up? And he's like, what's up, man? Come on in. I'm like, hey, just real quick. You saw the school newspaper, right? It was crazy. So like there was this dance move and whatnot. And I was doing it and they, they you know, it was a picture, but it's not like what it does. It's not like what it seems. And he said, James, look, I don't know. He said, 
I'm just glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. And it was through his grace for me and his accountability that I grew. And hopefully as a leader and a pastor, I pray you feel grace from me. I pray that you would know that I love you enough that no matter what you will tell me, I will not act differently towards you. Because I want to mimic the love that has been poured out to me. In Luke chapter 15, the son is walking back and he says, I'm going to tell my dad. I'm going to tell him I'm going to be a hired servant. That's what I'm going to tell him. And he starts to walk back in Luke chapter 15. He says, so he got up and he went to his father. And he says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And do you realize that the boy was sitting there saying, I'm gonna be a hired servant and that's what I'm gonna tell him. And the boy couldn't even get it out because before he could get his words out, the father kissed him. Before he could confess, the father kissed him. The, before he could come up with his lie, the father kissed him. Because the reason why the father was so just wrapped up in love with him because he loves to be in his child's presence. And so he kissed him. He kissed him. He kissed him. And if the father sees his son a long way off, he most likely was waiting for him. And can you imagine dad on the porch looking for his boy? He says, oh, that's Jack. It's not him. That's Jill. That's not him. Wait a minute. There's my son. And he may not, he may not feel comfortable coming all the way. So I'm gonna run to him. I'm gonna, oh, I'm an old man, but I'm gonna get my bones moving. I'm gonna run through the fields and around that fence and on that road and I'm gonna meet him where he's at. Because I don't want him to feel like he can't be real with me. I don't want him to feel like he can't be honest with me. I will meet him and the Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And I think so much about my daughter, my little one-year-old. And she's trying to walk. You know what's happening? She's falling a lot. <laughs> In fact, I would say she's, she's about 90% fall, 10% stand, 0% walk right now. And the Bible says you've been born And I believe our heavenly father, when you begin your walk, when you fall, 
The lie would be that he says, look at you, (laughs) you fell. Oh my gosh, get up. Or does he even celebrate just the mere fact that you stand? He celebrates that you just are trying to move. And... But when you're seven, and when you're eight, when you're nine and you fall and you stay down, the father still won't condemn you, but he'll say, you know how to get up. Some of you tonight are easily tangled in certain sins. And I don't want you to feel condemned in this place. And I don't want you to feel far away from God in this place. But some of you need to know, it's time. It's time to grow up. It's time to consistently be in God's word and be in his presence through prayer. It's time. It's time to start rejoicing and knowing God loves you. And celebrating with God. Lastly, the story there in Luke 15. It's really a story amongst stories. It's a story of a shepherd who lost one of his sheep. And when he found one of his sheep, he celebrated. It's a story of a woman who lost a coin. And when she found that one coin, she invited all her friends. She began to celebrate. It's a story of a father who, when his son finally came home, he celebrated. I pray that you would consistently come into God's presence no matter what and celebrate with your God the fact that you know him and to enjoy God. A picture of that is in communion. We are going to have a moment right now where we experience the body and the blood of Jesus Christ in our communion time. We will also have a time of prayer in the back. If our folks with our communion could come. Tonight, we ask that you would take time to meditate on your relationship with God, to meditate on the fact that God longs to be with you, and that this is a small picture of his presence in your life, and that you would enjoy him, and that you would run to him as he runs to you and some of you you need to take some time and just pray and ask God to help you to remind you 
to be encouraged to come back to him and that you would begin to develop that habit of always coming home. That you would develop a habit of going home to be with God in his presence. And then for some of you, tonight is a night where you need to just start the journey with God. That this is really the first time that you just need to acknowledge, I need to begin a journey with God. And so we'll have some people praying in the back, waiting for you. And so we ask that you would stand. Father, we ask now that you would just bless this communion time. We ask now, God, that your hand would be on us. We ask now, God, that those of, those of us that feel far from you, I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would realize the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray we would become convinced of the Father's love for us because of the work of Jesus Christ. I ask that there would be some, God, that tonight would be a night that they would begin that journey with Christ and that they would acknowledge that they've been looking in the window at our community and they need to begin to say, I want God to take over the leadership of my life. I want him to be the Lord of my life. And so Lord, I pray that your hand would be on them as they go back. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.